Well, I hope you come not to make me feel good. He was acting like you should come just to make the speakers feel good or whatever, because they worked hard. But I hope it's more than that. I hope we can be inspired in some new way, fresh way, to love Jesus more. How many of you recognize this uh, painting, this scene? What is this scene representing? Mm -hmm. The Last Supper. It was painted by Leonardo da Vinci starting in 1495. Um, It's a very famous painting. Um, We uh, see it. We've seen it all of our lives, probably. It was painted on the wall of, however you pronounce that, Santa Maria delle Grazie. I'm not sure how you say that. But uh, on the wall of the monastery there, And he was trying to capture, uh, Da Vinci was trying to capture the scene as he saw it when Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him. And he, uh, the story is told that when he was looking for someone to depict, uh, to, to depict Judas, he was walking around trying to find a criminal and the, the prior, the one, the one of the people in charge of the monastery, uh, complained of Leonardo's laziness uh, as he wandered the streets trying to find this person. And Leonardo responded that if he could find no one else, the prior would make a suitable model. <laughs> so, uh, but we're familiar with this. this. This scene, this picture has gone around the world. I was traveling in Iran once a country where I wouldn't expect to see something like this. We were in a pizza shop in, I forget what city it was, in Iran. Uh, I was traveling there with, with Christian Aid Ministries doing some research for them. And we were in this, re- in this pizza shop and they had this figurine of the Last Supper, this scene. And I was so stunned. I was like, wow, in Iran, of all places, here's this, you know, sitting in the restaurant. And I knew... From my interaction with Arab people, that you shouldn't talk too much about things they have on their shelf or things they have in their house, so they might give it to you. And but I, I didn't. I forgot myself, and I was like, "Wow, this is beautiful." And I was commenting them on this, you know, on this, on the thing they had sitting there. And once you know, we're eating uh, our pizza, and they came over and they wanted to give me this gift <laughs> to take it with me. Um, that was uh, I, I was a little stunned. I didn't know what to do with it. But uh, anyway, he spent, uh, Da Vinci spent from 1495 to around 1498 painting this scene. But within about 60 years after the painting was completed, it began to flake. And one writer said it began to flake into a muddle of blots uh, in which the faces were no longer recognizable. And uh, there were several attempts over the years that were made to, to, to try to restore the painting back to what it was supposed to be, what, uh, what it was. But that only made it worse uh, because the people who were trying to restore the painting didn't know what they were doing and they painted over it and messed things up and it just got worse and worse. Uh, on top of that, there were other events in history which impacted this painting and led to to it being desecrated and really in bad condition. Uh, A couple of examples, the French revolutionary troops used this this building as an armory and stable, and they threw stones at the painting, 
and climbed ladders to scratch out the apostles' eyes. Uh, the room was at one time flooded with water. Several feet of water were in the room. Um, it was used as a prison. The room was used as a prison, and who knows what the prisoners may have done to the painting while they were there. Uh, in 1821, there was an expert who was... He was an expert in moving paintings, fresco paintings, from one location to another, and he came in to try to remove the painting, preserve it, move it somewhere else. Well, before, uh, he, he didn't realize that it was actually painted on the wall, and he couldn't remove it, and so he started trying to remove it, and he actually damaged it worse, and then he tried to glue it back on, and, and it, it kept getting worse and worse. Um, and even in World War II, the building was struck by Allied bombing, and who knows what happened with, with it through that. <clears throat> so the question is, after all this damage and all this painting has been through, how do you get back to the original? How do you get back to see the beauty of that original scene? How would you do that? It's going to take a lot of work, right? It's going to take a lot of work to get back to the original. And even then, you're not going to get back to the original, probably. You're going to try. You're going to do the best you can. So finally, from 1978 to 1999, the painting underwent a major restoration. So in like 20 years, they went over this painting inch by inch, a team of people carefully removing all the layers of dirt and mess and mildew and inch by inch, little by little, piece by piece, you know, uh, re restoring this painting um, to what it was, hopefully, <laughs> as close as possible. 20 years they spent uh, trying to reform, re, re, bring it back to its beauty. <clears throat> so, what does this have to do with the context of Jesus? Um, I would like to suggest that maybe our understanding of Jesus is kind of like this painting. Uh, there were people who, who heard what Jesus said. They listened to him. They, they lived in his time, and what he said spoke to them in a certain kind of way. Um, but we live 2,000 years removed, right? And there's been all kinds of things that have happened since that. There's been the, the, the dust of war and, and the dust of, uh, of, you know, or maybe the attempts to repaint the Christian faith or paint it in different ways and, and to, to reform the church and whatever. And so there's all of these, as we study the scripture, we have all of this stuff that's kind of piled on top of it. And sometimes we have to dig back underneath all of that and say, what was actually there, right? What was actually, what was happening? How did they hear? How did they see? How did it look to the original hearers? <clears throat> so it's all of those things. And, and then if you think about how that, that we, we live in such a different environment, right? So the world they lived in and the world we live in is, is very, very different. Um, and I, I even, I, I enjoy studying um, church history. And one of the things that's interesting to me as I study church history, I'm not an avid student of church history. I enjoy, I enjoy learning from it. I wish I would study more. But one of the things that, that I found interesting is that sometimes if you read the early church people and how they discussed things and how they talked about them, um, they're not the way we talk about them. They, they talk about them very differently. I read this book called uh, uh, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, 
And the way they talk about salvation and how they brought people into the church and like, we just aren't comfortable <laughs> with how they did things back then. And that's even removed from Jesus somewhat, okay? So, but <clears throat> our culture is sometimes is so different than what they, that what they were experiencing. And so I think sometimes when we read the words of Jesus, um, we actually read something different than, or we read into it something different than what the, uh, the early Christians or the disciples experienced and saw. Um, and I, I'm not sure how far I want to take this because sometimes we want to always look back to the, the good old days and say that's when they had it all figured out and we just are a mess today, right? And I, I don't like that, that idea because I think in all of church history, God is at work, even in the dark ages. God is at work, God is moving, God is, you know, he's building his church. And so I think we need to be careful with this to a degree. Um, but I, I think there's, so, so one example I've heard is, um, the difference between the mountain stream versus maybe the Amazon River. So you think about, you go all the way up in the mountain where the water is fresh. It's coming out of the mountain. It's fresh. It's clean. And as it moves along, it gathers dirt and all kinds of things. And eventually, um, it's a muddled mess. And then you have to kind of clean it to really um, get the, the benefits. So again, I think we can take that too far. But I think there is something to that that through the years, so much has happened and sometimes it takes a lot of work, maybe 21 years of restoration, to try to get back to understanding um, Jesus in his context. <clears throat> now, let me give you an example. Uh, maybe, let me just say this. So why study the context of Jesus? I think I already said it's so that we can see deeper, so that we can, I, I think, so that we can, um, one of the words that I think about is the, the vividness or the, the color as we understand the context of Jesus, we see more of the, the beauty of who he really was and the things that he taught, because they're much more radical than what we realize sometimes, I think, even in his context. But maybe the question could be asked, why study the context of Scripture? Shouldn't we just read the Bible and follow what it says, what it says to me, what it says to you? Um, and I want to I say that I think studying the context can bring back some of the vibrancy of the story. Let me give you an example. Jeremiah 29, 11. Oh, can, can somebody quote that? Can we quote it together? For saith the Lord plans to maybe one person. How about that? We all know what it is, right? For I know the plan. Somebody. All right, everybody's shy. For I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, right? Plans to give you what? Hope and a future. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you could tell us the context of that verse? What was happening when Jeremiah gave that message? It's really interesting what was happening. Let's actually go there. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah uh, chapter 29. <clears throat> you know, we, we often, when we read this verse, we're reading it and quoting it when we're facing a difficult time in life, and it's, it's giving us hope, it's giving us comfort, rightfully so, 
Um, and we're, we're, of course, focused on the words hope, future, prosper. God's going to, you know, he's going to give us a hope. He's going to prosper us. He's going to do all these good things to us. <clears throat> but um, I think understanding the context of this verse, is, is, it adds a lot of color. Like I was saying, it makes it more vibrant. Uh, so first of all, uh, the historical context. Let's think about what was happening in this time. So Jeremiah was a prophet. Uh, I think he was a prophet through like five different kings, something like that. Um, and in that time, the, the people of Israel were living under the domination of Babylon and Egypt. And the Babylonians would come and take some of them captive and take them to their land as, as captives. And, and then they'd let some of them there to kind of take care of Jerusalem and and, uh, and then they would come again. There was three different deportations, three different times during Jeremiah's life that the Babylonians came, and uh, they went through this over and over again. And in that time, and in, in, in through this time, I'm not sure exactly at what point this was, there was another prophet came along. And let's look at this in, in chapter 28. <clears throat> it came to pass the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Jedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet. So Hananiah is this prophet's name. <clears throat> and he said this in verse 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years will I bring again into, the, into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. So we see here that Babylon had taken some of the treasures from the house of God, taken them to Babylon. Hananiah is saying this is all going to be fixed within two years. <clears throat> and, uh, and so we go on there, and we have verse, in verse 5, I think it's interesting how Jeremiah responds. Jeremiah, he says, um, he said unto the prophet Hananiah, in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people that stood in the house of the Lord, even the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. He's like, yes, let's, th this is great. This would be wonderful. <laughs> um, let it be. You know, Jeremiah wanted the same thing. He would have liked for everything to be over in two years. But he, it, the story goes on, and Hananiah, the word of the Lord in verse 12, comes to Jeremiah, and, uh, and there's this, it's interesting, the, the story is fascinating. If you've lived in the Middle East, this was a, a classic Middle Eastern uh, power struggle <laughs> that happens on the streets every day, you know. Um, they're yelling, and they're probably excited, and it, it shows in verse, uh, in verse 10, Hananiah the prophet took the yoke from off of the prophet Jeremiah's neck and break it. So there's this scene playing out in front of all the people. And, and then, then uh, in verse 12, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet after that Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go tell Hananiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the yokes of wood, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. And in verse 17, we see that Hananiah died the same year because he was prophesying falsely. Um, actually, up, up further in verse 8, we have that verse where it says, if a, if a prophet... If what a prophet says comes true, then we know he's a true prophet. Otherwise, we know he's a false prophet. So that's the backdrop, okay? Here's a man 
another prophet coming along saying, it's all going to be good. It's all going to be over in two years. And even Jeremiah was like, amen. <laughs> Let's let this happen. Um, but then we go to the next chapter. And Jeremiah has a different message. He says, let's go to verse 10. He says, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon. Now this is just before the verse we always quote, right? Just before 29.11. He says, After 70 years are accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. But 70 years. 70 years of suffering before this was a promise for the future. And in this time, he says, you should go to Babylon, you should build houses, you should dwell in them, you should plant gardens, you should eat the fruit of them, you should take wives, you should beget sons and daughters, you should be a blessing in the land. And after 70 years, now who would you want to listen to? Which message would sound more attractive? The two years or the 70? I think about COVID. We hear people saying, oh, it's going to be over next month. And then Dr. Fauci says next year. And we're like, oh, Dr. Fauci, go away. You know, right? Um, we don't want those kind of prophets that, you know. But, but I don't know. Doesn't that add a different I don't know, flavor or something to that verse. I don't think I'll ever think of that verse in quite the same way again. Um, as I've studied this, just realizing that, yes, God does promise this, but it's a long, <laughs> a long, you know, it's not like tomorrow. Uh, you might be in, the, in Babylon for 70 years, but God always is going to look out for your good. All right, there we go. Um, so, a couple of other things. I think we're going to have to uh, pick this up again tomorrow night. Um, the context can really add color to, uh, to the story. Um, again, I want to say that I'm not assuming that with careful study we're going to grasp all of the Scripture. In fact, if you look at da Vinci's painting... Uh, let me just point out here. So after all the work that they went through, there's still some problems with the painting. And I think we're going to wait to get into too many of the details till tomorrow night, but I encourage you to read the stories of the Passover because this story is actually the setting of the Passover. It's the Passover week. And it's a week where the Jewish people had expectation for something to happen. So they were expecting uh, deliverance. Uh, just a, a little bit. What was the Passover celebrating? What were they remembering? Leaving Egypt, right? And so they were remembering the past that God had delivered them from Egypt. And they were coming into this Passover season. And think about what they were, think about what they were, what was going through their minds. They, Jesus, <laughs> they'd heard about all the things he was doing. And he even raised Lazarus from the dead. And all of this stuff is coming together. And, and, and the Jews are coming together at Jerusalem. There's two million of them, says Josephus says. There's two million who would come together at the Passover. So they're all coming together to Jerusalem. They're thinking about Jesus. They're wondering what is going to happen. We were delivered from Egypt. 
And they were expecting another deliverance from the Romans, right? So there's a lot going on in this story, in this scene that we don't see. And there's also some other problems that I would like to point out um, with da Vinci's uh, painting. And I think in in order to do that, we're going to have to read the text. And so I encourage you to go to Matthew 26 and Luke 22. And before tomorrow night, spend some time reading the story of the Passover. And tomorrow night, I'd like to dig more into what, what, are the, what are the things around the Passover? What were the Jewish people feeling and thinking? What was going on um, in, in their minds? And there's some really, really, really interesting nuggets as we unpack that. So, again, I want to suggest that we study the text, we study the context, so that we can um, see the tr- the, the, the original painting better. Uh, we can see the colors come back to life. And, and I think it will lead us to love Jesus more and to realize that he really is uh, worth our worship and worth our commitment. I'm going to stop there. Uh, I think there's a break now. Is that right, Daniel? Pray? Okay. Father, thank you for your word. And we just pray that in this time, you would make your word alive to us in new and compelling ways that things that were dull would come to life and things that were normal would would jump out at us and that we would never uh, be able to read some of these things in the same way again. Lord, I really pray that you would would move um, in this session in the next few nights. Lord, we love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I think he said you can either stand or why don't we stand?